Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing life, work, and creativity. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. I've been listening a lot to the worries about AI and automation, and someone recently said it so beautifully. He said, There's no reason to be afraid of AI and automation unless what's really generating the fear is how capitalism works. And if you're going to keep your job, then automation doesn't really threaten. It just makes your job easier. And in my MBA, we talked a lot about this. There's, a, there's people out there who think that automation is going to replace humans. That is a massive disservice to humans. We are pretty extraordinary on a child, watching a child learn, a computer cannot learn the way a child does. It just can't. Maybe someday they will, but it's doubtful. Computers can do the things that they are built to do, but they can do a lot of heavy lifting. So back to things at work. If you are doing something that is reasonably mindless, over and over and over, start thinking about ways to automate that task, to front load that task. If you have a calendar and then you also have to put that same event on another calendar, try to find out if there's some tool like if this, then that, IFTTT or Zapier, something that will, for the, the time and attention cost of learning it, which is just a little learning curve, plus setting it up, if from then on you only have to do that task once, you have just relieved yourself of the burden of repetitive work that was unnecessary for the depth and ability of your mind. If you have to set up a program, look at the program and see if it's possible to front load next year's program. So make templates of the publicity you might have to do. Make, uh, there's a wonderful add-on that's free until you use it too much called Boomerang for email, where you can craft emails that will go out as of a certain date. You can send yourself reminders, for example, but you could also say, well, next year at this same time, I'm going to have to do this task. And you can set those emails up now. And then next year, you can do that a year ahead. If you have to sign contracts for something every single year, then don't wait to the last second to do that. Unless waiting to the last second is perfectly easy and low stress. So I've worked at some places where everything was procrastinated, put off till the last minute, And then everyone had to run around trying to do things on time for a deadline. I did what I could to change some of those processes while I worked there. But I have worked as a managing editor before. And the lesson I came away with as a managing editor was lie, lie well, lie for the betterment of the project. It's lying for a good cause. And what the lie is, is front-loading the time. 
if the very, very, very last date that the printer can have the magazine files is the 20th. And if after that, you cannot get the magazine out on time, then the 20th is not your deadline. The very, 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 very last deadline for that magazine, for everything to be completely done, is the 15th. Why? Because something will go wrong. And you need to be okay with the something that goes wrong. So now that deadline is the 15th. Is that the deadline you tell all the contributors? Of course not. You tell them the 10th. The very final deadline beyond which we cannot go is the 10th. After the 10th, we may not be able to put your article, photos, whatever it is, into this magazine. Why? Because someone will have a system meltdown. Someone will have some kind of awful thing. The ads won't come in. There'll be something massive that happens. And that's a different crisis than the one that happens before the printer, which is that the files themselves, your, your own things may go wrong. And then the last thing is being very private about these deadlines. People can know that there's a little bit of deadline fluidity, but under no circumstances should you ever tell people what those deadlines truly are. If you're doing group work with other students, for example, I was in an MBA and we sat there at my instigation when we were assigned things as a group. And I explained how this works because this is basic project management. Although we all knew that the project was due on the 20th, we made an agreement to not put that on the calendar. We put the 18th on the calendar because these are school projects. They're not a full-on you know, publication because at that point, we might even bring it in a little early. And then all of our assignments devolved from that by reverse engineering the calendar. All of this feels like work, and it is. All of this feels a little tricky and maybe even a little bit of a lie. Maybe it feels a little dishonest on some level. To some extent, it feels like, well, we won't be able, like we're robbing ourselves of time. And I am here to guarantee you that this does not rob you of time. It makes you use the time you have much more effectively because it is very difficult to do your best work under dead panic. Many, 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 many people, and as someone with ADHD, I know what this feels like, feel like they do their best work or they do their work at all only when they're in the threat of obliviation. That, that last minute, they leave it to the last, I do my best work the night before. Da, 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 da. No, you do the work the night before. It is not your best work. Your best work, were it done earlier, could be reviewed before you put it, before you handed it in. It's confusing your best work with working at all versus just having it fall apart and not actually doing any of it. It's not good for us to learn or work under high stress. 
for the mere reason that it is high stress. Do we learn under those conditions? Sure, we learn in spite of that stress. But don't confuse it with the best learning possible or the easiest learning for, or even learning that you retain. Because one of the problems with learning under high stress is that it affects retention. It is much, much, much harder to truly understand concepts that you learned under high stress. So lower the stress. How do you lower the stress? By lying to yourself when things happen. If you can get the trick of lying and still knowing that you're lying, that's ideal. And before people immediately think that's not possible, I'll tell you this. All of this uses a version of the same mechanisms as the placebo effect. Placebo effect, if you don't know it, is that you give one group medicine, you give an identical group as much as possible, something that isn't medicine but looks just like the medicine, and then you compare the two and see who got better. There have been some really interesting studies done in the last few years about the effect of placebos because placebos are, in fact, incredibly powerful for many, many, many things, for many disorders even. The placebo itself turns out to be like medicine. If it's given from somebody in an authority, if it's given with attention and caring and listening, those things may be more effective than whatever was in the medicine that was being tested. In any case, the placebo effect is incredibly powerful. What's particularly interesting about recent research about the placebo effect is that placebos frequently work well even if the subject knows it's a placebo. For many, many years, all these studies have been done where nobody, in fact, double-blind tests, the whole point is that the placebo group and the medical group, neither of them know what they're getting. So that gives you a baseline of, is this effective? But then as placebos have been studied on their own as a concept, as a phenomenon, now they're doing tests where half of the subjects know it's a placebo and they still have good effects from it. This week, I'm chatting with Craig Addis, master boat builder and instructor, mechanical engineer, and scoutmaster. We'll talk about craft, design, passing it on by teaching others, and taking the long view about your stuff plus your kids' stuff. Thanks for being on the podcast, Craig. You're welcome, Janet. So first off, I don't care which one we start with, but work, community, or creativity, but tell me some of the stuff that you do. Well, I am a mechanical engineer. I am currently working for a company that makes remote sensing equipment for environmental use, primarily. Um, So we make weather radar, among other things, and it's used for... Climate research used for pollution control, and occasionally we do some other more interesting stuff. But um, that's primarily what we do there. Is there hands-on stuff, or is it mostly... It's a very small company, so as a mechanical engineer, I do design. I sit at a computer, and I work in 3D CAD, and I design them. But I also have to bring them to life. I work with 
two assemblers who do electromechanical assembly, and I get my own hands dirty doing assembly work and lifting. And, you know, we make stuff that's as big as sea container sized systems. Oh, wow. And then we make some tiny little stuff that you can pick up. I shipped a system to China today, which is to help them with their pollution problems and lack of rain. Um, wow. and it's a half million dollar system, and you could just kind of snuggle it under your arm and run away with it. <laughs> that's very cool. Do you do milling as well, or is that stuff done? The pieces are made somewhere and then they come back. Um, most of that stuff is done out of house. Although if we need something or we need to change something, we've got a little benchtop milling machine and drill press. Okay. Um, we'll make stuff in epoxy and fiberglass. Oh. You know, it really depends upon what we need. Because we are such a small company, you wear lots and lots of hats and you <laughs> solve lots and lots of problems. Right. That's pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. And how many projects do you do in maybe a year? I know it's not going to be, you know, summer, big summer, small. It really depends on the year. I mean, I've had three major projects since about November going on. Okay. And I'll have, like, back from vacation, I should have three scatterometers, which are very sensitive radar systems for a Canadian university. Um, I'm working on a large system for the Navy that they're going to use for weather research. Wow. Did you have to come into this knowing about meteorology? No. Okay. I worked with uh, a man at my last job where we made optical instruments and he is working there now. And they had a, a guy who did mechanical design leave and he knew I'd been looking for a change and said, come on aboard. Okay. So, yeah. I bet you know a lot about it now. Uh, I know quite a bit about it now. What is it I'd like to sometimes? <laughs> and then what happens? So you make the stuff, and is there like an ongoing support for it or ongoing ser- service? Oh, yeah. Okay. We are a little like prostitution. <laughs> um, you got it, you just sell it, and you still got it because it always comes back for service and repair and upgrades. Um, yeah. So you never truly escape it. We've got a system for a Canadian university that's in for refurbishment. It's probably 15 or 20 years old. It's been upgraded repeatedly. So these things never really go away. We've got another system in the house that was originally built for an American university. It was an airborne radar system. It's been a ground-based system and huh. a vehicle-based wow. system. So it gets reconfigured to do all of these things. Um, right. So you really have to wrap your brain around, how can I take what I've got and turn it into something else? Oh, that's really interesting, too, because you don't really have like a set product. Like a product base. Everything sounds like it's customized and bespoke. Yeah, we're like a, a mini Raytheon. <laughs> Somebody comes to us with a very specific problem, and, you know, we come up with a solution to meet their needs. Because, you know, a large company like Raytheon can't adapt and do what we do in the time frame and the costs, you know, that, that they need. It would cost millions and millions of dollars for them to do something that we can do for far less. Do you do prototypes like the stuff that you make that you've done before that you want it to become a consumer product of some kind? Nothing we make is consumer product. 
not at the cost of this stuff. I mean, some of the switches cost as much as $8,000 a piece, and that's just one microwave component that goes in a system. Right. It's really for research. Yeah, research-based. Very interesting. In the background, kind of when you were talking about it, the sea and then the ground, they always show those people that go into tornado chasing. Is is that the kind we of We make some tornado chasing trucks. Huh? Wow. Um, we have one with an eight-foot diameter antenna. It goes on a pedestal, and they swing it around at 30 RPM. Oh, my God. This is this is such a sexy job. Um, we make the wave height radars that they fly on the hurricane hunters. Whoa. We make wind speed sensing radars they fly on the hurricane hunters. So when you hear about you know storm surge and wave height and wind speeds, that's our equipment on those. That is cool. And some of our employees actually go and fly on those aircraft. <laughs> Have you ever done it? No, that's not my thing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get asked to do that. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, I designed um, airborne systems at, you know, for stuff like that. And we just recently shipped out one of Noah's systems that they're going to be putting back on the Hurricane Hunters. Wow. Season. What's your favorite part of the job? Probably that I get to not be micromanaged most of the time. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, we're given the design parameters and, you know, within the design parameters, we're kind of free to do what we want. You know, we're, we try to be conscious of cost, how quick we're going to be able to get stuff and get it out the door. And we're also concerned about how user friendly it is once we get it to the field. Oh, that's a good point. How challenging is that? I was going to ask you what the biggest challenges are. How challenging is that? I built a system. I can't disclose the customer. It was a (laughs) radar system that had to fit into basically two child shoebox size enclosures. Oh, wow. One of the things about microwave systems is some of it's electrical connection, so you can just plug wires back and forth. Okay. But... Other bits of it use what's called waveguide, and waveguide is this rigid tubing of a given size that the microwaves travel down these little hallways between the components. And you can only bend those things so far to get the microwaves down the hallway. So, you know, you have to bend and fold stuff around to fit all this stuff in this enclosure. And the enclosure is probably like, not even seven inches wide, probably six inches tall, and maybe 18 inches long, the main one. And it was packed. Once you assembled this stuff, you had to slide sections in and then plug those in to their adjacent components because you were not going to get to the components on the boards that you were kind of slipping in ever again, (laughs) or not unless you really, really have to. That packaging is challenging. These are some the limitations of physics, right? That's not something you can nano away in some way, right? No, 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 no. It's, it's not <laughs> something you can nano away. I mean, the components are a given size. Now, what about like user training? Do you just work with the people who are ordering and you're giving them the product that they already can know how to use? Or do you have to go and train them? And We have field service engineers and they go out. And That's what they do. All right. Engineers as Interesting. Well. So they go on site and they train the end user, or if it's a system which is large and they're doing final acceptance testing, they come to our facility. Okay. They get trained. 
and then you know from there they get out in the field and use it. We help assemble information for user manuals, you know, draw sure. and pictures and so forth. Yeah, uh, exploded using CAD. Cool. You know, the three D CAD's neat. You get to roll stuff around on the screen, and <laughs> you know, you, you get to animate stuff as it comes apart. See how things move. Uh, that is very Tony Stark. It is very Tony Stark. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's pretty. High- it's all Tony Stark. That's very neat. I know your creative life is also very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> which, which one? Oh, well, actually, the one that I know about is building boats. What else well, have you got? I, I teach the boat building at Hill, and um, one of my coworkers at Hill, his wife passed away, unfortunately. Oh. And he kind of lost his taste for doing that. So now I've picked up two of his furniture making classes. So I teach introductory introductory furniture making as well. Oh wow! A couple nights a week. Wing chairs on the boat? Eh, not quite like that. <laughs> I, I've had some, you know, beautiful uh, uh, shadow box tables for the deck with sand oh, wow. shells to put in them. I've had potting benches. Um, we've made some neat little finger-jointed boxes as an exercise to get people to learn the different woodworking skills. Oh. So, you know, it, it's kind of neat that way. Yeah. And are you using the furniture instruction sort of a gateway to the to doing the boat building for No, people? although it becomes one because <laughs> on my, my Friday night class, one of my boat builders uh, also works uh, at a local sugar house. So on Saturday mornings in the spring, she couldn't make class on Saturdays. Okay. So she opted to sign up for the Friday night class. So she's upstairs building her boat while everybody's uh. downstairs and working <laughs> on all their woodworking projects. And people would wander upstairs and they'd take a look at the boat. That's <laughs> nice. cool, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind That's of actually the ideal marketing, right? Cross-pollination between classes. Well, the other thing is Hill Institute has an open house every year. Um, oh. First weekend in June, so our boats are out front under a tent on display, ah. and the public comes in and they see all the arts and crafts that people create at Hill. Tempting, and uh, they see the boats, and people will walk around. You know, some of them just slack jawed in <laughs> awe. I bet, and other people are like, "Where'd you get that? How'd you do that?" Da, 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 da. And and it, and they're like, they're all over it, and they have to have one. <laughs> It is really interesting. I've built stuff. There's a very different feeling to me between, say, slapping a table together, a bookcase, and then, you know, that'll be fine. But then something like a boat that feels very like an order of magnitude of danger higher because. No, it's it's not. I mean, I work with a couple of guys who are pretty good designers. Uh, one okay. is a guy by the name of Jeff Horton. And we build one of his designs called the Stonefly Canoe. And we've actually improved it. Even Jeff admits that we've improved his design a little bit. So we've taken something which was utilitarian. We also try to make it beautiful. Yeah. People get to the point where they're like, that's too beautiful. You can't put that in the water. <laughs> you know. Um, another guy by the name of Dave Gentry, I've done a lot of work with Dave. And he does this method of design very well because we're doing skin-on-frame boat building right now. Okay. And Nick Shada of Guillemot Kayaks, he's got a new design for skin-on-frame. I was just down at the Wooden Boat Show 
talking over the boat design with him and got to test drive the boat. <laughs> My wife says, oh, you're playing at the boat show. <laughs> actually doing, you know, work. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it can be both. It's both, but yeah, it's, it's, it's work. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, these guys are, are creative and they're taking existing ideas and existing designs and changing the way that they're made to be a skin-on-frame boat. And I used to do cedar strip and fiberglass canoes. Okay. I've done traditional ribbon plank canoes, like an old town type canoe. All right. Yeah, yeah. And I've also done a little lapstrake canoe construction. What's that? When you see uh, like a rowboat and it looks like siding on a house. Yeah. That's called lapstrake planking or over there would be called lapstreak probably. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I've, I've, my goal is to do, be able to master each one of those boat building techniques so that I can offer or do repair, or do what I, I need to do, you know, within okay. that whole design wheelhouse. Um, so Dave Barry, the humorist, once said that the thing about boats is that they're unfortunately allergic to water. <laughs> boat is actually an acronym, you know. Oh, for what? Yes, break out another thousand. <laughs> Otherwise known as a hole into the water into which you throw money. So, well, that's another question, actually. Do you really enjoy boating as opposed to making boats? Absolutely. Or is it? Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. my, my daughter, Megan, she and I built a kayak for her together. Um, I've got a skin on frame kayak and canoe here. I've got a, I've got a old, old ribbon plank boat that still needs restoration because I never find the free time (laughs) and uh, a cedar strip and glass boat. So it's kind of like you just pick what you want to go with and (laughs) this accessorizing. Well, <laughs> built by the name of Dan Miller, who, who owned a, a business, uh, Dan used to say that, you know, you needed uh, boats like people need golf clubs. You need the right boat for the conditions. So, <laughs> all right, you know, it's, it's your it's your opportunity to have one of each. <laughs> I can get my mind around that. How did you start doing this? Like, when did you start? Oh, my dad. When I was probably about three years old, my dad was up at the, the local scout camp with his troop. And I don't remember why we were there, but I got harnessed into one of those big orange canvas life jackets <laughs> and dropped into the middle of the canoe to go out for a paddle. And I was lost to the cause Aww. from there. Um, nice. Being out on the water. I, I like to swim, but I'd rather be on the water than in the water. Okay. So yeah. I really like to be able to get out and go for a paddle. And um, then you sound like you have a preference for the boats that are oared rather than the ones that are sailed. Is that true? Or Yes and no. I, I finally, I've never really sailed before. I had a friend who took us sailing um, out in the Finger Lakes that I used to work with. And he and his wife were racers and lightnings. And I enjoyed it, but I never really get the opportunity to sail around here. Mm. So my dad wanted to go up to the wooden boat school in Brooklyn, Maine. He'd taken a class building traditional canoes, and he wanted mm. to go back and do it again. And I had taken that class previously, and there was another class with a friend of mine offering a computer design class. I'm like, 
I really don't want to spend my vacation sitting in front of a computer. Thing. <laughs> um, so they were offering an introduction to sailing class. Uh, okay. And I took it. I had a ball. Um, <laughs> we sailed Harishoff 12 and a halfs and Haven 12 and a halfs. And they're, they're very similar boats. One is a sloop rigged boat with a jib and a rigid keel. And the okay. other one is a gaff-rigged boat, which has a, a yard at the top of the, the mast for the uh, sail, and it has a centerboard. Mm. But they handle very similarly. So had lovely time, had great weather, had great instruction, and just... And I haven't been in a sailboat since, and it's kind of killing me. <laughs> the one time. <laughs> so, you know, in... In my spare time, I've been drawing some sketches and things of a boat that I'd like to build. And I've been looking at some design books to, you know, get the technical information that I need mm. to do an effective design, basically. Okay. So, but, yeah, I'm, I'm, I need to get out and sail. But I need a sailboat that's appropriate for this area that I can throw on top of the car and that I can get out with that's that's primarily why i i do more paddling than sailing right because of the limitations of the vehicles easier to work with here yeah right but and i can go places with those little boats that i couldn't go with anywhere anything else no trailer i can go up to like the dead branch in chesterfield right off of 143 take the boat off the car and go paddle up into a swamp that's about four inches (laughs) deep and See the right. iris and the red winged blackbirds and the herons coming by. Ooh. You know, places that other people just can't get to. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about balancing work, community, and creativity. Have you been tempted to make a glass bottom boat? Actually, I am. <laughs> I, I've started the frame. Oh, it, wow. It is a Wee Lassie canoe. It is a skin-on-frame boat that Dave Gentry designed, and we stretched a little bit. We've, we added another frame. We made it another foot longer. And I've got a heavy-gauge clear PVC. Cool. In the boat in clear PVC, so it's literally going to be like a glass-bottom boat. Oh, that's wonderful. You. you were talking about the swamp, and I was thinking, well, you want to see what's in there. Oh, that's so neat. How nice to be up there with a glass bottom boat. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of, it's it's intended as sort of a marketing tool because, <laughs> you know, here you are, you're going to be driving down through town with this boat on top of your car. And people are going to be like looking at it and going like, where's the boat? You know, <laughs> all you're going to see is the frame. <laughs> the invisible boat. Kind <laughs> of like the Wonder yeah. Woman boat. Do you ever do anything with Mystic Seaport? No, I wish I did. Okay, uh, just curious. We were down there last weekend because of the Wooden Boat Show, which is held at Mystic Seaport. Oh, okay. And my wife used to work for the president of Mystic, so really? Seaport. So we were down there. We actually ran into Steve White and his wife Maggie. Oh, which that's was cool. Nice. But uh, yeah, I mean they have fantastic program, and actually yeah. quite a few of the uh, the people that work in the Seaport's shipyard. Our instructors at the wooden boat school, so I know some. Oh, of them I see. Okay, in both places. Got it. The one thing that I think they've lost, they used to have uh, a pretty active traditional boat building thing going on 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 the uh, 
site and uh, a fellow by the name of John Gardner was a famous restorer and builder who worked at the museum and mm-hmm. wrote several books about traditional boats and dories and this and that. And, you know, they have the John Gardner workshop, but they really don't do anything with it. And I think they could do build your own classes down there. Mm. But I'm not sure how they'd incorporate it into what they're doing. Right. I should bend Steve's ear about that. And is there a cultural divide between sort of naturally propelled boats and like motorboats? <laughs> it's a diplomatic um, silence. Depends. See how tactful I was? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> well, there's there's wooden motorboats, and then there's some that are made out of that other material. <laughs> Um, and the people who tend to drive the boats that are made out of that other material have a different attitude. Okay. So we'll, we'll just leave it at that. Some are very nice. Some yeah. Are, There's a cultural divide. Suspect, yes. <laughs> have you ever been tempted to do anything like lightweight air or anything like that? Any other vehicles? <laughs> no, I, I'm pretty happy... With the boat thing, uh, yeah, okay. I wish I had more of my own time to do my own design work. Right. You know, for most of what I do, I'm modifying someone else's designs mm-hmm. um, or building them as they are, if they're good enough. But, you know, I have ideas that I'd like to, you know, put to paper and then build. Right. But, you know, that's... It's one of those things you have to find time for. Right. right. <laughs> That's actually a question. So you're already doing your full-time job. You do this. You already do these projects. How many boats do you end up building in a given year? No, almost none. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you teach others too. You're teaching others. So you're involved. Yeah. So I'll have eight boats that I'm helping people build in a year. It does count. Yeah, every year. Um, yeah. And helping Megan build her boat, you know, right. was a long, drawn-out process, but it was well worth it. Yeah, um, nice. But yeah, I find that the balance is, is lacking, and when I'm, you know, sometimes I'm creative under the gun, but other times I'm not as creative as I'd like to be Yeah, under the gun. Yeah. So... You know, I have to find outlets for creativity that are quick. Right. So I love to right. cook. So my other oh. creative outlet is I come home and I cook. I uh, create food. Did not know that. And it's practical, too, you know? Of course, it is practical. It's temporary, though. <laughs> it's temporary, but starving to death is, is really not temporary. <laughs> That's permanent. <laughs> That's kind of neat. So let me ask about that. What kind of cooking do you do? A uh, little bit of everything. I, I, you name it, I probably do it. I, we do a little bit of baking, you know, some breads, okay. pizzas, various things like that. I All make right. some great uh, soups, uh, turkey barley mushroom that I've sort of stole from Judy's barley <laughs> mushroom. And, and I also like to just cook generally, you know, some Italian, Malaysian, nice, and that, all the other. Okay, so a real. Yeah, we've got a great, like, yeah, whole whole breadth. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we had a great recipe though. It was like 
Zatar chicken. We took Zatar seasoning with lemon juice and olive oil, a little pinch of sugar and salt, and we marinated oh, wow. chicken breast and grilled it. <laughs> and that sounds really amazing. Placed it onto a pita with tzatziki sauce and tomato and cucumber, mm. little olive, kalamata olive, and some lettuce. That was very nice and very. <laughs> and in the hot weather, it was fantastic. Mm, so. Sounds very picnicky. Yeah. Nice. I'm going to go into community for a minute before I do this sort of segue into that family. So how many kids do you have? I have two. Okay. I have kids. Gareth, who is 15. Okay. Megan, who is 18. Mm -hmm. Megan is in, she graduated from Northampton High last year. Congratulations. Thank you. And she's kind of taking a gap year. She is in Berlin, Germany. She has been working as an au pair for a family that the father is a high grad. Oh. <laughs> um, and they have a son who's about seven and a daughter who's now 10 or 11. Oh. And um, so she's been there since last August. Oh, wow. My son and I are, we are headed out to New Mexico with the wow. Boy Scouts. Wow. We're going backpacking in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains at a ranch owned by the Boy Scouts called Philmont Scout Ranch. It was donated by Wade Phillips and Phillips Petroleum. Okay. And it's about 130,000 acres. Whoa. And we'll be on the trail for 12 days. Wow. Um, How many kids? uh, We're taking three crews. It's a total of about 30 adults and boys. Okay. And... We're going to fly into Denver. We'll spend five days acclimating to altitude down through the front range, sightseeing, whitewater rafting, doing some fun stuff before we get to the ranch. And did you guys have to fundraise for this? Did you have to like sell popcorn and trees, oh, Christmas trees? Yeah, we did, we did a fair amount of fundraising. Okay. Uh, at least our troop did. We're drawing boys from all over the council. So oh, basically neat. the council is the western half of the state. So there are three young men going from our scout troop and myself, and then there are young men scattered around. So our troop chose to do a fairly significant amount of fundraising um, because we are sponsored by our local Elks Lodge. Oh, that's neat. And, you know, that's, you talk about community, that's one of these places where community really comes together because their goals and aims are just support youth and veterans. Oh, okay. And, you know, we help support them in their goals and aims by, you know, we serve their fundraiser dinners, uh-huh. tables and clean up. And, oh, you know, we're involved in other things because there are a lot of veteran members, you know, flag day ceremonies, Memorial Day, Veterans Day. Um, oh. They serve a dinner to veterans from the local hospitals, veterans hospitals. Um, so that how robust it's an it's an interesting thing for a while they were calling it a while ago they were calling it like the death of the bowling league how robust are membership organizations you know with cable tv cell phones nobody's doing anything joining anything how robust are groups like these is that true with the elks that nobody's joining do they suffer no not really you know they do have some younger members um, okay it is a pretty great organization mm. um but there are a lot of younger members and new members coming along who are picking up the torch. So, 
Yeah, I, I think while there is change, I, I think it continues. Do you belong to to that group at all or no? I do not. Okay. I, I do not. It's interesting. You were a Boy Scout. Yes. You became an Eagle Scout, right? I think I went to your ceremony. <laughs> it may well have gone. <laughs> There's probably pictures somewhere. Proof. evidence. <laughs> so, yeah, I have a question then. How do you stay with Boy Scouts? Like a lot of people join and then they drop out, never to return. Well, I, you know, I wasn't really active through my college years. Okay. There are like at the University of Massachusetts, there's the Alpha Phi Omega organization, which is a Boy Scout organization. They're they're basically a service huh. for Ah, yeah, no idea. It was like a fraternity. Um, huh. So they continue to serve their community doing that. And Alpha Phi Omega at UMass runs something called Maribadge University, where they oh, host cool. a couple of sessions for the Boy Scouts for the council to earn merit badges. They they run like a university for merit badges. That's really neat. Um, so yeah, they're given back wow. to their community by doing that. So like I, I wasn't particularly active when I was in college, but when I moved to Vermont, um, I was looking for an apartment and you know how hard it is to find an apartment. Yeah. Um, Particularly as a young single guy, people are loath to rent you an apartment. <laughs> I think it's just going to be all parties. They're thinking going to have keggers and, and rip the place <laughs> apart. Um, so I ran into a man who was a local professor at the community college. Okay. And he asked me for a copy of my resume when considering me as, as a tenant. And at the bottom of my resume, it lists that I'm an Eagle Scout. And he says, ah. Uh, <laughs> well, I find out he's the local district commissioner. Uh, for the <laughs> and he started showing me different apartments. <laughs> and then he sucked me into being a, a unit commissioner in Vermont. And I worked with two scout troops um, in, in the Bennington area. Okay. Um, and I still remain friends with one of the scout masters who owns a music store up there in, in Bennington. Okay. Um, but, you know, that was a great introduction to the community. Right. You know, by right. volunteering with this group, I met lots of people. Right. And that, you know, as, as a young person coming in to a place that you're really not familiar with, it's an excellent way, number one, to meet people, but to be involved in the community. Too. Right. Of course. Yeah. So that was kind of neat. Um, yeah. At the time, uh, I don't know if you remember uh, the show Northern Exposure. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I was Dr. Joel. In <laughs> He's kind of the sweet voice of normal. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay. I, that, was, that was me. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, I, I was kind of the fish out of water in, in that time. Uh-huh. When I first arrived, I, I didn't realize that as a, a young engineer, um, you know, I, I was working at a manufacturing facility that made electrical cords. And so here I am. I'm, I'm a young professional single guy with a college degree. <laughs> um, and little did I know in what kind of demand <laughs> you were in that community. Um because most of the people that worked in the plant were, were women who were of an age of probably my mother or my grandmother. And <laughs> I would come into work and there'd be little, like, 
Corningware Crocs of this or Tupperware of that, people trying to feed me for the first probably month and a half that I was there. And then I started getting invitations to like Sunday dinner. Then I figured out that all of these were softening me up to introduce me to the daughters and the grandparents. This is very Jane Austen. You're really in a different century up there. You kind of are. Yeah. There were there were people who hadn't hadn't been probably 30 miles from where they were born. Wow. Yeah, even in this day and age. Wow. And it was, it was amazing. Mm. So, yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience. So did you kind of keep on with this? Like, did you become a Cub Scout leader for your son? Things like that? I, yeah, yeah, I was. Um, my daughter did some Girl Scouts until okay. they, the, the leaders who were doing the Girl Scouting decided they quite had enough. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, Gareth wanted to do Cub Scouting, so we did Cub Scouting, and you know we moved on into Boy Scouting, and he he likes the Boy Scouting more because you get to get outside and go camping and get right. dirty and have fun, um, and not listen to adults. You just <laughs> it's a boy-run organization, so <laughs> the so yeah, he he uh, he went to scout camp one year and. Susan was looking for something else for him to do at the end of the season, and she saw that there was a camp down in Connecticut, and they would offer a pretty significant discount if you'd shown that you'd been to a Boy Scout camp anywhere hmm. for a prior week. So he went and he did their climbing program. Oh, uh, yeah. He had a ball. Yeah. So the next year, he found another camp within this council in Connecticut that offered another climbing program that was a week-long climbing program. And he was all about that. And he signed up for it and was actually in a provisional scout troop. He, he was put into another troop because our troop didn't go to that camp. Oh, yeah. So he got to meet all these guys from this other troop. Who, oh, that's who cool. Remained friendly with, and that's been kind of cool. Oh, that's very neat. Um, we did a whitewater rafting trip with him two weekends ago. Wow. Last year, he went to be a CIT and had such a good experience. They they have you go down for one week, do the program, rotate you through the areas, and if they like you, an area will kind of bid on you for the next week. Nice, nice. So the guys in the climbing program knew him, liked his what he was doing and his work ethic, and they said, "Hey, can he come back <laughs> again? It's normally only two weeks." <laughs> And we're like, eh, we're going on vacation. He should really consider signing up for camp staff next year. So oh, wow. even though we're going to be away for three weeks in the middle of the summer, he went and interviewed and they took him and he's been away at camp. He's got his next year's job already. Yeah, wow. That's awesome. That is yeah. such a nice trajectory. Has he gotten you to climb yet? I haven't done any climbing. Mm. Um. We're we're gonna one of the things we're doing as we go out to New Mexico is we're stopping at REI's flagship store and we have oh, yeah. the Pinnacle, which is their indoor climbing wall. Yeah. Three hours for the afternoon. Seen so photos. We're gonna be climbing the Pinnacle. Nice. So Nice. We'll be doing some climbing and he'll be yanking me around on the way. <laughs> I have done this, by the way. Um I've done this in exactly the same way where my child was on belay. We did it for Mother's Day, uh, the first time I ever climbed. And it's a profoundly beautiful experience to be held up in the air by a kid. And it's your own kid. And they're keeping you alive. <laughs> I'll be hugging that rock. <laughs> it's really just a moment. 
So you get a lot done. I, I do get a fair amount done because, you know, I figure I work five days a week at my primary job. Yeah. I work two nights and, you know, one at least full morning a week um, teaching over at Hill. Right. Um, I have scouts on Monday night and sometimes we have activities at the Elks on Tuesday nights um, that we need to do. And then we have weekend camping trips with scouts. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we find it pretty full. So, <laughs> you know, the whole balance thing gets tough. Yeah. Um, and basically, you know, I, I think the last year, if Megan had been around, that would have been very difficult. Mm. Um, we find time to FaceTime with her, which is great. Yeah. Um, and I'll get panic text messages, you know, Daddy, what's your recipe for this? Or how do I make that? Or I've got these ingredients in the house. What can I make? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Here, personal Google. So I get some, some challenging texts, and I usually get them at like 545. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> You're the resource. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that been tough. Um, Gareth has been active. Um he did cross country, winter track, and then he did ultimate frisbee in the spring. Yeah. And I got to virtually none of the cross country meets, mm. which I really felt bad about. Um, I got to a couple of the indoor track meets, so I felt better about that. Mm-hmm. And I got to, I think, two of his ultimate frisbee games. Yeah. Um, because yeah. I'm just so flat out. And right. I feel bad about It's that, a lot. You know? And he's 15, so he's not driving it, right? He's not driving yet. Oh, so that's, Someone still has to cart him around. Oh, be chauffeur. Well, Susan, being a teacher, gets out that, earlier in the day than I do. So right. she's able to get him places and pick him up places where I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we play tag team. <laughs> Some days we're sort of ships passing in the night, you know. What time did you come to bed? You know, know, (laughs) questions the next morning. I I, I don't know. So, yeah. Yeah, And as you know from your daughter, that then they get their licenses, a sudden, like, the car's life gets way more complex. But your hours just get strangely inflated. Like, I just don't have to go get milk. Someone else can get milk. Well, when she got her license, I have. At the time, an eight-year-old Honda Civic, which was in fantastic shape. Oh, nice. Still, still is, might, might I add. So, you know, I was sort of thinking about a new car, and we figured hmm. we'd just pass that along to her so that she'd be able to do the things she, she needed and wanted to do. You know, and she got a job in the spring of her senior year over at Friendly's, did okay. really well at that, and... You know, she was able to be independent, and I didn't have to worry when she was coming home after closing that she was going to be walking home or riding her bike. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's some of those things which help us stretch time. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking about, yeah. Just gets a little bendy. And then in a couple short years, you'll have tons of time to do boats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, you don't wish it over. But uh, time frees up. You know, my, my father is, is going to be 88 this year. Oh, wow. So, you know, that is also another thing that I have to think about. All right. Of course, you're in sort of that pinch position in life. 
Yeah, that's happening now. Is he in good health? Mostly. He had a knee replacement, good. and he's he's struggling with the, the rehab from that. So oh, that, oh, I that see. requires a little extra work. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't expect him to be lifting air conditioners into the window at his age. Right. Of course not. Right. What, what would you want to do more of if, in an ideal world if you had like to shift everything and could, could shift time the way you wanted it? If, if I had the time, I'd probably be doing more of my own building. Oh, yeah, design. right. Design and building, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of creativity, there's only so creative you are when you're under the gun. Right. Um, you really need some time and some space to yourself to kind of sit down and chew over ideas and draw sketches and, and that cognitive and try piece. things out. Right. Um, and and that all takes time. Yeah. I think uh, that's one of the hardest things is building that buffer time. Flow is great, but you don't get it if you don't have a chunk of time to, to get it in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as far as part-time jobs go, the, the part-time job I have is really nice because I'm well paid for that part-time job. Right. And with the exception of benefits, if I could do more of that, right. I wouldn't, you know, really need to do my full-time job. <laughs> um, but, you know, the other thing I've learned is you don't make much money as a boat builder. Right. But as a designer and an instructor, you usually do very well. Oh, interesting. Huh. So. Makes sense. You know, it's a little like the shoemaker's kid. You know, you don't, <laughs> you're helping everybody else with their shoes and you don't have any yourself. But, you know, you got to find some time to make some shoes for yourself, too, or you're going to be out walking barefoot. That's not much fun. <laughs> nice metaphor. Yeah. It's a hard call to not leech all the fun that you get out of something because you're now doing it for work. If you overbalance that way. I can see that being tricky after a bit. So there you are building in the time for the yourself, really, but yeah, and, and tempted to get the money. The other thing is, you know, I get a lot out of the interactions with the people that I teach. Of course. Um, some people come back again and again. Um, and you spend a lot of time with people. So you get to know their personal lives as well as what they're doing building boats. Right. Um, yeah. As a teacher, you're not only you know part of what they're doing and what you consider professionally, but right. you you also kind of become involved with them a little bit personally too. You know, right. they're, they're friends, and you're also there with the goal of helping them do the best they can. Mm. I didn't I didn't even ask you this. How long does it take to build a boat? Um, typically, they start in September, and they're they're mostly done by May. There's some little oh wow. Ends. You know, we we had a session. We had a session uh, Wednesday night um, doing some some little cleanup stuff, putting trim on and hmm. you know some sewing of, of boat skins on right. some kayaks. So, so eight months maybe. Yeah, that gets you a boat. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And if you really if you work at it, you can probably do it more quickly than that. I can build a boat from start to finish probably in about a week. Whoa. But sometimes we have what we call double sessions which are kind of fun because we'll either do like a potluck lunch um, oh, nice. and people swapping recipes. So I get that part of creativity going on. And community. Uh, and community. <laughs> yeah, really it, hit the nexus. It is. Um, and it, it's probably one of the favorite parts of my life because I get to do something I enjoy. I get paid to do something I enjoy. Right. 
I get to work with people that we have fun with. Um, I get to bring out other people's creativity that they don't think resides in them and oh, that's help beautiful. them build yeah. some confidence that they don't know that they have. Right. And have a beautiful product by the time they're done. And, yeah. you know, we'll build like several of the same design in a year. Like we'll build, let's say, five stonefly canoes in a year. Okay. And each one is unique in some oh, way yeah. because it has the owner's fingerprints in parts of the design. Huh. You know, yeah, that's it's lovely. the trim, the decks, the woods they choose, the colors they choose, the finishes they choose. Yeah. Um, so they get to bring out that individual creativity so that it's not, they're building the same thing, but it's not cookie cutter. It's beautiful. It's sort of the sense of you launching all these people in their boats every year. People in yeah. their boats. And the funny part is, you know, I'll be somewhere and it's like, hey, I saw one of your boats. I'm like, well, hmm. it's not my boat. It's <laughs> but thank you very much. That's, that's you need to just have it be like movie credits. Just a little yeah. list. You're not the top line, but you're definitely, you know, the director or the producer. <laughs> a couple lines yeah, down. technical director. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That is really neat. This is what I was really hoping for, was uncover people's interesting things that they do. Yeah. And thank you so much for being one of those interesting people. I really love talking to you. Take care. I'd like to thank Craig for talking with me today about boat making, engineering, and scouting. I'll put links, including one to Hill Institute, in the show description. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number nine, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.